Thomas Barnes. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor of gathering together as family on an evening like this that you've ordained from eternity past. Father, thank you for your consistency and your grace and your giving to us as you continue to bless us out with lessons designed to build us up, to set us straight, to orient us to your will. That is, as the word teaches us, that is where we find the most peace and contentment and joy in time. Father, thank you for your patience in doing so. We just ask for increased faith along the way. We pray also, Father, for those that can't be with us due to illness. And we pray, of course, for those that are still lost in this world that have a much greater illness to be dealt with. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening of fellowship like this one a reality. We do just ask your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Certainly a um, very encouraging lesson uh, set before us this evening, as you'll find out. Uh, a lot of scripture, as I was continuing, uh, or as I was closing up shop uh, this morning on the lesson, I kind of scanned back through my notes and I said, there's just so much scripture. And I love that. I love that the Spirit... Uh, makes his own points that I'm really just continuously taken out of the way. I'm just, as uh, Scotty said on Tuesday evening, just a, a messenger. I'm really just a, a waiter, if you would. Go to Romans 8.35. This evening we are tasked with pondering the following, Romans 8.35. <clears throat> And I don't want you to read ahead. I just want you to read with me. Romans 8.35 Who will separate us from the love of Christ? It's a fine question, isn't it? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Up here on the board. And this is a lesson for all of us. Obviously, Paul writing these things to the church at Rome we overwhelmingly conquer from Huber Nikao, and some of you already know what Nikao stands for. It means overcomer, but Huber or Huber means hyper, beyond, plus Nikao, overcome, conqueror. To be more than a conqueror as a result of supernatural forces. So he says in verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, to be more than a conqueror as a result of super 
natural forces where we get hyper or super from in the English. So it's super nakao or hyper nakao, hyper overcomers, super overcomers. And it's a reference, a very strong reference to the supernatural. In other words, the only way that we're able to overcome. And that's what he says in verse 37. But in all these things, what is, what's going to tear us away from the love of Christ? It's going to be this, this, this problem, your little piddly problem in life, this problem. No, no. And all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. In other words, conquering tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword from verse 35 is a super or a hooper, hyper natural act, nothing less. Nothing less. So the conclusion then answers the original question in Romans 8.35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is nothing. No one. That's the whole point. For nothing nor anyone is able to trump, think about it, be hooper or hyper God, to be above God. And so if it's God's will, if it's God's power, then nothing can separate us from Christ. That's the whole point, and that's what Paul was getting at. It's like He asks a question, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Is this, 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 or this? Nope, nothing. Because nothing is above God. And that's a very important, encouraging thing for all of us to remember. Again, verse 37, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Again, it means hyper, beyond, overcome, conqueror. To be more than a conqueror as a result of supernatural forces where we get hyper or super in the English. Hypernatural, supernatural. It's the same basic uh, word. Uh, Paul continues with this affirmation in verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there we have our answer. It's fantastic. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. And Unless you're reading your Bible, you don't get those pearls. That's the whole point. Unless you're coming to church to hear your pastor teach, you're not going to be guided to those principles when you should be guided to them. That's the whole point. Because these gifts, these ministries, uh, a, a true ministry of God is a supernatural gift. And God works all things together for good for those who what? Love Him. So this leads us back to our lesson on Tuesday, which really focused on the content of Sunday's message titled, How God Enlightens the Eyes of Our Hearts. The simplest answer we received from Holy Scripture was really twofold. Read and hear the Word of God, as Colossians 3 would say, let it richly dwell in you. And secondly, be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5 for example. These two things. Let the Word of God richly dwell in you and be filled with the Spirit. Controlled by the Spirit. That's the answer we got. How does God enlighten our hearts? This is how. So, as the Spirit highlighted on Tuesday, neither of these things are out of reach ever. 
You can swim and eat until your precious heart is content in the bread of life. You know what? Does everybody here own a Bible? If you don't own a Bible, I will buy you one. How about that? And then you'll have no more excuses. But I don't think anyone in here has that problem. The point is that everyone has the Word of God available to them. So you can swim and eat until your precious heart is content. You can swim in it, so to speak. We might rightly consider such a statement as fundamental to spiritual nourishment. Let me ask you an honest question then. If you were in Ireland and you happened to be on a tour bus overlooking some open land, and on one side of a small knoll you saw some sheep totally emaciated, and they were standing in the dirt without water or food, and from your perspective on the bus, you could see that the other side of the knoll was rich with grass and even a watering hole. Would you not say what a group of stupid sheep? Would you not say that? That's how it is to see emaciated Christians. It makes no sense. It makes zero sense to see malnourished Christians. It makes no sense, especially given the point on the board, that you can swim and eat until your precious heart is content. You just got to listen to what God is saying about eating and dining on the bread of life. What the Spirit's saying is that we believers have been given the utmost supernatural abilities to live a plump, content, satiated existence. In other words, there's no reason any of us should ever be malnourished. And yet, like the dumb sheep on the wrong side of the hill, some are malnourished some more than others. And that just begs the question, why? I mean, if we can just look at sheep and go, how dumb are they? I mean, it's like right there. And yet, if we look at the average sheep in the so-called Christian ranks, they too are no different than the dumb sheep standing in the dirt. So the, the question really that's begging to be answered is why? Why would anyone with access to this kind of nourishment ever be malnourished? Well, for starters, as the Spirit drove home on Tuesday from Sunday's lesson, and this was a balanced statement from Sunday, never forget the instrument that God uses to deliver you. For example, your pastor. I'm not the only instrument, but I am a primary instrument put in your life. Never say this thing, and I've, I've, you know, people don't say this per se, but they live it. They may not come out and say it, but their lives are an indictment against them. They say, well, I get it, I just need to read my Bible, I no longer need a pastor. Well, that is a heinous error and an aberration. Consider how God has already used your pastor to deliver you and the fact that you never arrive. 
Today it's one thing, tomorrow it's another thing. So to address the question, why are some believers malnourished? Well, I know more believers than I'd like to that are, let's say, floating around. Let's call it that. Floating around, unattached to the God-given spiritual gift, office, and authority of a pastor. They're just floating around in the ether. It's unbelievable. And they are the ones that are on, in the dirt because they're shepherdless by their own design and they're too stupid to go to the green, shep- to green pasture on the other side of the knoll. And God says, well, let that be an indictment on you. May you be malnourished because that's your arrogance. That's your judgment, your arrogance. I know more people than I'd like to that are doing just that. Don't, don't get me wrong. They have every excuse in the book. In their persistent arrogance, they have chosen to reject God's grace due to arrogance. And while the Word of God commands, we never reject His grace. They will never admit to their folly. And some of them refuse to accept that their internal misery is even related to such arrogance. Touting peace and happiness outside of the grace of God. Well, my friends, let me, let me just give you something right up front. There is no such thing as peace outside of the grace of God. There is no such thing as peace outside of the grace of God. That should be tattooed on some people so they can look at it and remember every time they get arrogant and refuse or reject God's grace. In any case, what the Spirit's getting at is most simply stated as follows, and this came out on Tuesday as well, we must be fully dependent on the Word and the Spirit. We must be fully dependent on the Word and the Spirit. And whatever those two convict you of, that is what you should do. We saw that in Holy Scripture. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Truth being the Word of God. Therein lies the connective tissue between peace, which is a result of faith, as we've learned in the past. If you want peace, you've got to have faith. And that which actuates such grace gifts, which is humility. Go to Luke 17.5 Luke 17.5 Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Therefore, they must be fully dependent on the Word in the Spirit. Luke 17.5 As an example. This is what humility looks like. Luke 17.5 The Apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. They were genuinely upset that they lacked faith. Increase our faith. When's the last time you cried out to the Lord like this in humility? When's the last time you cried out to the Lord like this in humility? And when the Spirit undoubtedly answered, because He's never silent, is He? 
He always answers you. If you honestly ask him in humility, he will answer you. So when's the last time you cried out to the Lord like this in humility and when the Spirit undoubtedly answered, maybe you were asking with wrong motives, as James would say in 4.3, did you actually listen to him? Did you actually listen to him? If he answered you, he probably said something like, Receive all, not some, all of my grace, not just the parts you so arrogantly desire. Receive all of my grace. For example, he might say, read your Bible, submit to your pastor, do not forsake assembling together to worship, read the blogs, go to the Bible studies, abide in the gospel, etc., etc. These are all grace gifts that I've given. And that's what he'll say to you. Receive all of my grace. I believe, and I think this is part of the vantage point of my position, I believe that what most Christians want is the equivalent of a pharmaceutical pill that numbs the pain. So they live their lives outside of or rejecting the grace of God. Something they're not designed to do, especially as believers. So they live their lives consistently making poor decisions and what they really want is the equivalent of a pharmaceutical pill that just numbs the pain. Pain nonetheless that is self-induced. And not to be offensive to uh, anyone, but it's like, a, it's like the drunk that buys an equal amount of Advil when shopping for their whiskey. Do you know what I'm saying? They're not interested in addressing the real problem. As a matter of fact, they've already premeditated their own ungodly solution. It's like the day after pill. That's okay. You can still, if God conceives in the womb, you can still murder it. So just make sure you have one of those pills ready in case you get pregnant. Well, the problem is you shouldn't be having sex outside of marriage. The problem is not that. The problem is you. The problem is your perspective, your arrogance. So these people are not interested in addressing the real problem. Only trying to find a solution that allows said problem to persist. Same goes with dysfunctional relationships. Instead of trying to, you know, fix a person, instead of trying to fix a person, I mean, that's God's job last time I checked. Maybe you ought to leave them alone. Stop making them stumble. And for some people, that means stop going out with them. Stop dating them. And even more tragically, stop having illicit sex. These things don't heal wounds. They open new ones. You get the point. 
I mean, look at verse 5 again. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Up here on the board. If you want more faith, then simply do as the word commands. As the spirit of the word convicts you to do so also. Receive all of God's grace. That's what he's going to answer with, because that's what the Bible answers with. If you want more faith, then you have to receive all of his grace and humility. Oftentimes, the most profound encouragement comes during prayer. When it's just you and God having a very personal conversation. As I've taught you in the past, directly from Holy Scripture nonetheless, those who don't receive what they ask for are often asking with wrong motivation. If you premeditate something and say, God, can you deliver me? And you do that a hundred times over, maybe he's just going to say no. You really need to suffer this out because you're nothing more than an abuser of my grace. You only come to me when you need a certain something as a result of your ridiculousness. Up here on the board, James 4, 2a to 3 in the Amplified. You do not have because you do not ask it of God. You ask God for something and do not receive it. That's right, he may say no. You may not get your Advil when you're intoxicated with the world, when you're coming off of your little um, escapade with the world. Do you know what I'm getting at? When you're through adulterating, when you're through having illicit relations with the world. He may not give you your Advil. He may say, you know what? You've done it so many stinking times, I'm going to let you sit that way for the rest of your life. And the pain you're going to feel for the rest of your life is self-induced. And I tried to stop you, but you wouldn't listen. I tried to stop you. Do you remember? You remember when you didn't listen to me? Remember when you told me you'd never do it again? Remember those times? And you did it a hundred times over again? Well, I'm done. Live with it. That's right. I mean, it sounds goofy, right? But you can ask for something and God may say no. Because you're that arrogant. <laughs> because you ask with wrong motives. That's the whole point. God sees the heart. You ask with wrong motives, out of selfishness or with an unrighteous agenda. So that when you get what you want, you may spend it on your hedonistic desires. In other words, I feel better. Time to go drinking again. God delivered me once again. I am what I am by the grace of God. <laughs> no, my friend, that's out of context. Yeah. The funny thing is, is that faith is always available as a free gift from God. But as the Spirit's been impressing upon us in the Word of God, we must be humble disciples of truth in order to be set free by the faith that comes along with it. And how does that work? Romans 10, 17 says it very clearly. So faith comes from hearing. Increase our faith! Okay, then what? 
Faith comes from hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. You want more faith? Do what you're doing right now. Read your Bibles. Take every form of grace available to you. That's how you get more faith. Up here on the board. When given faith, we are given the conviction that supernaturally settles our souls. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that the, one of the greatest, isn't that just the greatest thing about having faith? That all of a sudden you have conviction that you didn't have yesterday. And because of the presence of that conviction, you are now a pillar. You are now rock solid. The winds come and the rains and the tides and the waves and the, you know, the hurricanes and the, what, the storms of life. And you're a rock solid pillar. Why? Because you have faith. And you have, because of faith, you have conviction. Is that not what everybody's looking for? Is that not where peace and contentment come from? To know who you are in Christ? I mean, completely? And depend wholly on the Word and the Spirit? Isn't that what faith establishes in each one of us? And when that happens, you have the, you have a, the conviction of a pillar, of a rock? Yeah. When given faith, we are given the conviction that supernaturally settles our souls. It's our conviction that unsettles those without it. Hence, arrogance is hatred of God-given confidence. You want to unsettle someone? Walk into a room of pretending believers, professing Christians. Want to unsettle a group of people? Do that thing. That's even worse than going into a group of atheists. Because at least the atheists aren't playing pretend. So I was reflecting on this. You should too. How many times have you been asked in times of crisis when everyone else around you is falling apart, how are you managing to remain so peaceful? And you can only respond honestly with, it's the strength of my Lord in me, for it is His peace that you see. And you realize in that moment that when he said in John 14, 27, my peace I give to you, that he wasn't lying. And as a side note on that topic, it's easy to become so self-absorbed sometimes, just especially when you're going through some heavy times or something like that. It's easy to become so myopic when that we fail to see how blessed we really are. How blessed we really are to have even the smallest portion of His peace in our lives. We only need to open our eyes to the suffering in this decrepit world to see how far He has already sanctified us. We, get, we just get so close to the fire sometimes. Is that fair? We just get so self-absorbed. You know how it is. What's the, what do you do when, when there's pressure from without? What do you do? You, you get like a turtle, right? You go inside your shell and you get the hard shell now and you just kind of buckle down. But you don't see anything outside. And if you spend most of your time inside like that, you forget how blessed you actually are and how very far you've been sanctified. And so it's a good exercise to open your eyes really wide and say, I don't know how other people are even surviving this world right now without Jesus Christ. Again, the point on the board, Romans 10.17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And when given faith, we are given the conviction 
that supernaturally settles our souls. That's what people see. And for many people, without said conviction, it unsettles them because they don't have it. And you might experience things like, you know, like that um, passive-aggressive jealousy, that kind of a thing, where someone's like, oh, isn't that great for you? And you can just tell they're seething. They really want to, like, stab you in the eyeball. Do you know what I'm getting at? You know what I'm saying? Like, they don't really like you. Matter of fact, there's a hatred towards you because you have something that they don't have. And they know it. And it bothers the heck out of them. But they're so arrogant, they don't really want it. They want to survive on their own. They want to prove to you and the rest of the world that they can sanctify themselves without God. And they're really upset that they can't and that they know it. And many of them will go to their grave miserable. But with a smile on their face, you know what I'm talking about. Speaking of conviction as a function of faith, go to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Hebrews 11, verse 1. <clears throat> Speaking of conviction as a function of faith. Again, our primary our title is, Who Will Separate Us from the Love of Christ? And all the Spirit's really doing is building you up substantiating the simple statement that I have already made at the start of class, nothing and nobody. And you should know that. And that's where you get your convictions. Because you may think for, I don't know, wrongly so. You may not have the same level of faith, the same level of assurance, um, until you keep on learning and growing and seeing uh, what true faith does in the face of opposition, in the face of this ridiculous world. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I don't know about you, but having any conviction in future, in the future is wonderful because it's hope. It fosters hope in one's soul. Having conviction about this little life, I don't know, maybe I live 49 years, I don't know, maybe I live a for a hundred years, I don't know, whatever. But it doesn't matter, it's a, very, it's a drop in the bucket. Just having the conviction, the faith of knowing where I'm going after this and who I get to worship forever and ever and who I get to love forever and ever and be loved by forever and ever. That's what conviction does. It settles me. It settles you. It settles us. And that's a really important, encouraging thing to know. And it should... Uh, incentivize you, I guess, to read the Word, to receive all His grace in every form, because you want this thing called faith, because you want this thing called conviction. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared, by the Word of God, and that goes into that supernatural zone, if you would, dunamis, remember the power of God. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So, I guess the question, one of the questions that I ask myself is, what believer hasn't at one point in their lives said, I want this faith? Who hasn't read Hebrews 11 like in its entirety with the whole Hall of Fame? 
I want that kind of faith. Who hasn't said that? I know I have. I want that faith. Who hasn't said that? Anyone? And shortly after, as Jesus promised he would, the Spirit reminded you of something like Romans 10, 17. You go to God in earnest prayer and humility, finally, let's say, and you say, I want this kind of faith. I just read Hebrews 11, Lord, I'm fired up. I want that kind of faith. I really want that kind of faith. And he says, what about Romans 10, 17? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Oh. Oh, that thing again. Oh, you wanted the pharmaceutical pill again. You wanted the quick remedy. You wanted to be able to pop something, and it was going to be this big aha moment, this spiritual aha moment, and your life was going to be changed forevermore. Don't work like that. Sorry. So this is really an important lesson for all of us to heed. Yet, I'd argue that it may just be the most underappreciated lesson of all. It's so simple, but it's so underappreciated. What do you mean, Romans 10, 7? What do you mean, the Word of God? What do you mean, read my Bible? What do you mean, submit to a, an authority? What, what do you mean? Exactly what the Bible says it means. It's very simple. Do these things, and you're going to get your socks blessed off. Seriously. And what's the problem? You know exactly what the problem is. So this answers the question as to why we see malnourished Christians all around us. The simple truth is that their arrogance has rejected God's grace. It literally is that simple. Their arrogance has rejected God's grace. As Scott said on Tuesday, it's, an, it's a perfect analog to this. It's like this, right? You know? The little kid who won't eat? Eh. You know, like, and the kid's like, yourself. It's like, right? They look you right in the eye, and their little sippy cups right there, and they go, yep, I did that. And you put it back, and they go, yep, I can do this all day. I'm strapped in this stupid thing with this onesie. He's riding up. I'm not digging this. It's a battle of wills, because that's the unbridled flesh. That is it right there on the left. The unbridled flesh. Thank God they smell nice. And they're cute. What's the mom's biggest fear in that moment? That the baby will become malnourished if he or she doesn't eat. That's the fear. It's the same fear that Paul shared. I mean, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, and 8. I'll give you the New Living translation. But... We were as gentle among you as a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you dearly, so dearly that we gave not, you not only God's message, but our own lives too. Uh, up, I don't know, this, is, this really doesn't have a whole lot to do with Scripture per se, but it is an experience. Up until, recent, up until the last mm, 15 years, I was convinced that every mother on the planet would die for her child. It's not the case. Not every mother is like that. Not every so-called pastor is like that. 
there are a lot of posers out there. I guess that's what I'm getting at. All I can tell you from Holy Scripture and even personal experience as a shepherd is that it is viscerally painful for me to watch any of you refuse God's grace and become malnourished. And trust me, I see it. It's awful. There are people that should be here right now that aren't. And they're, they're meandering out there in the world like skeletons. And they should be here and they know it. And they're rejecting God's grace. And it's horrible to watch. And I guess that's a good... Oh, she's not still up there. I guess that was a good example of the mom. That fear that you're going to be... You're not going to eat. And you're going to be malnourished. I mean, I guess that's the greatest fear of all. Is that I'm going to come up here and teach you something and you're going to go, nah. Nope. That's going to interfere with my video gaming. That's going to interfere with my uh, hair dyeing appointment. Or getting my toes trimmed. Or whatever you people do in your spare time. I don't know. Watch Hogan Heroes? I don't know. Are you older people? <laughs> right? I suppose if I had the equivalent of a spiritual IV, I'd sedate you and jam spiritual nutrients into your bloodstream. But God hasn't given me that ability. And more importantly, that right. For that would be a breach of your individual free will if I were to force feed you like hospitals do. Don't have that right. The very best I can do is keep on doing what I'm doing right now, which is show you the truth and encourage and exhort you as the Bible commands I do. Go to 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. You may say, well, it seems to be out in left field here. I thought we were talking about who will separate us from the love of Christ. That's exactly what we're talking about. But you need to actually respect that statement. It sounds good on a punchline, doesn't it? It sounds like a little thing you'd put at the end of your emails, right? Oh, this was sent from my iPhone. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? You know what I'm saying? Well, people put scripture there. It sounds great. It's like a punchline, right? Yeah, who's going to do that? Right? And you're not even convinced of it yourself. You're not even, you don't have the convictions of it yourself, and yet you use it as a punchline in your email responses. So it takes a guy like me to say, Hey, wake up. Quit being a little poser. You know that little miserable area of your life you got? This is why it's there. Because you're posing. God's word is not a punchline. Leave that up to Hollywood. 2 Timothy 4.1 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now that last little phrase, 
means a lot to this office. Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the very best I can do for you, as I stated earlier. Keep on doing what I've been doing, using the word, not even my personality or anything like that, to shepherd you in whatever way possible. But it was that last note that made me think. Um, this side note up here on the board. For those of you who might think that I've become overly evangelistic in this ministry, I ask that you remember Paul's words to Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5. Do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. One point that came up during Tuesday's lesson that really resonated in my soul was this. Okay, so all right, all right, Lord, you've convinced us all we're to evangelize. You've convinced us all that it's the Great Commission, that this is our purpose in life, that we're to go out and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the four corners of the earth. We're convinced. Okay, how do we do that thing? Well, point number one, never sell the gospel. Never sell the gospel. What does that mean? We can never talk, to a uh, talk a person into believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give the gospel with your own personality and be real. No matter what it is that you are. If you're quiet and reserved, then be quiet and reserved and let your light shine. And if someone asks in your quiet, reserved way, give them the truth. If you're really outgoing, you may have an over-the-top personality, then be yourself that way too. You know what? This world is full of enough phonies. And who doesn't have phony radar? Right? Isn't it one of the most distasteful things to see in the person? Uh, uh, here comes so-and-so. And it's gross. And you're like, just be yourself. This world is full of enough phonies, including false prophets. And we're going to get to 2 Peter 2 in a moment. But here's the point the Spirit's saying on this idea of never sell the gospel. Souls are never won through salesmanship. Not one has ever been won through salesmanship. Ever. One person is not a better evangelist than the other because they have a more glowing personality. Never has a person been won, a soul, through salesmanship. We are not peddling something. That's what the phonies do. That's what false teachers do. That's what people looking to have sordid gain do. They'll sell whatever it takes to make a buck because they have no integrity. Souls are never won through salesmanship. Rather, they are won through the accurate, full presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, technically speaking, unless you think God is imp impotent, you could say just like this, I'm giving you the gospel right now. And literally do it. And give whatever scripture was on your heart and say that, and God the Holy Spirit could work with it. If you don't believe that, then you don't believe the word of God. There's just so much garbage out there, especially in the so-called Christian churches and or ministries. I always get a kick out of that one. It's always this sort of like, you know, 
fantastical ministry. We tore the world. We saved 5,000 souls at a time. And the dude could sell ice to an Eskimo. He's a salesman. And it's grotesque. And that's not against salespeople. I'm not getting that. I'm saying you don't sell the gospel. That's not our job here. Go sell turkeys on Thanksgiving. Seriously. You're not, you're not meant to sell the gospel. That's an insult to God. Making our efforts to be accurate about the gospel is all the more important. Knowing what we know about the landscape nowadays. It's just way too many people profiteering, even, off of so-called Christianity. All right, Peter wrote about this as well. Go to 2 Peter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter 2, verse 1. Peter was no stranger to this whole thing. And like any good shepherd, he was well aware of the, the wolves circling the flock. People that had really no care in the world but for themselves. 2 Peter 2.1 But false prophets also arose among the people, so don't be surprised where they come from, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, while in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. 
But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. That's a reference to apostates who tasted of the Spirit, a la Hebrews 6, and then walked away, putting themselves under greater judgment. Verse 21, For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Again, we don't need to act like so many so-called Christians are acting. Peter's tremendous warning ought to Remind us of this. Go to 2 Corinthians 2.17, where Paul speaks to this error. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17. The last thing we need to be doing is taking up with the world. Is to be encouraging uh, false teachers because you want your ears tickled. To be, I don't know, Whatever. 2 Corinthians 2.17 For we are not like many peddling the Word of God. That, I don't even know, I get, um, I'm not going to say nauseous, but I get repulsed by that. That's repulsive to me. To, to, to peddle the Word of God? That's disgusting. For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. That's that Greek word, kapalauo, up here on the board, peddling. It means to sell for profit, to make trade of. That is so foul, I feel like swearing about it. I almost said the, the F-bomb. Because that's how disgusted I am with it. It's so flipping foul that I'm repulsed by it. How in the world do you get up in the morning and call yourself a teacher, a man of God, and peddle the Word of God for profit? That's unbelievable to me. We are not salesmen, you see, but that's what a salesperson does, right? They peddle whatever their product is. I'm not judging anybody. I was in sales, so whatever. They peddle their product. That's what their job is. But we don't peddle the Word of God. The Word of God is not for sale. Last time I checked, it's free. It's purely free. It's like the only thing in this world that's totally free, right? Without any strings attached. The grace of God. So it's bizarre to me that we would even proposition the sale of it. Does that make sense? 
It's unbelievable. It's repulsive. But I don't know about you, but that's what I see. There are so many people making millions of dollars off of the Word of God. Go find something else to do. And I'm not talking about a pastor who's worthy of double honor if he's doing his job. I'm not peddling the Word of God here. I'm doing a job. There's a difference. There are so many people that have made a business out of Christianity. It's flat out repulsive. And every time we buy a book from them, and every time we watch their television show, and every time we go to their internet site, you know what we're doing? We're paying them. We're paying them. We're encouraging that kind of behavior. Look around you, my dear friends of Jesus Christ. What you will see, sadly, is a bunch of people who have made Christianity a business. I actually get emails on this. Want to increase your church's profits? Are you serious with this? You have the audacity to approach me with this garbage? This breaks my heart for so many reasons. But you know what the biggest reason is? That people are being led astray from the gospel. Whatever. You want to be an idiot and sell a book? Whatever. But if you're going to lead people away from... And I'm talking about people that I actually have high regard for. There are people that I've frequently quoted up here on the board that are millionaires. And it's, it breaks my heart. It's like you need to get away from that. It's like, what, did you know so much about the Word of God, but you missed the portion on peddling it? Whatever. My, my, my gripe with it all is the same gripe that Paul had. All right, we can disagree on this. We can go back and forth. But if you're going to teach, if you're going to present a false gospel, then I have a problem. If you're going to lead people astray with a false gospel, then I have a real problem. That's what breaks my heart. These people are nothing more than salesmen using the Bible and Jesus' holy name to cash in. So the last people we want to emulate when evangelizing is folks like this. Hey, let me tell you, my name's Johnny. And uh, I got the gospel for you. Michael Jackson. Right, you do the thing. Do the moonwalk. What are we doing? We're going to play that game with these people? Haven't they seen enough of the showmanship from Pearly White Curly here and his gang? Haven't, we, haven't they seen enough of that garbage from... Do you know what I'm getting at? So don't we owe them the truth? Don't we, don't we owe the one who redeemed us with his blood? The accurate representation of the gospel? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Are we going to play the game? Do you really think you need to compete with a salesman? There is no competition. But we Americans, right, we're almost, we're almost like born and bred to compete, right, from the day we're born. Always got to be king of the hill. Always got to win. Always got to win. Always got to win, win, win. Did you say win a soul? I will win this battle. Did you say win a soul? Mm. Go home. Put on a thinking cap. Okay, come out. Da -da, new outfit. You know? Got some teeth whitener. I get a toupee. 
I'm being ridiculous because that's how ridiculous and repulsive it is. The last thing we want to do is emulate people that are selling or peddling the Word of God. The world has enough of that foolishness. Again, the principle up here on the board, never sell the gospel. We can never talk a person into believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give the gospel with your own personality. Be real. This world is full enough of phonies, including false prophets. And again, souls are never won through salesmanship. Rather, they are won through the accurate, full presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've got to close here in a minute. So let me just give you something to chew on before I go. The most successful salespeople in this world close the most deals, right? I mean, that's what sales is. <laughs> close the deal. Well, given there's only so much time in the day, we might add that they are arguably the most efficient with their category of labors. But we cannot ever apply such tactics to evangelism. We cannot sell someone the gospel, for that is nothing more than man supposing he can do something that, you know, God apparently cannot do. We cannot sell someone the gospel, for that is nothing more than man supposing he can do something that, in their minds, God apparently cannot do, which, frankly, is lunacy. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We just ask for blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.